Hey, we have already late May and the PSI conference is just around the corner. On a Wednesday, there's a session about regulatory topics and you can submit questions to that to be answered by an expert panel. You can send the question to alexander at theeffectivestatistician.com or submit it directly at the conference homepage. If you send it to me, I will then submit the question and also provide a summary of the session in an episode after the conference. And now, some music. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Kieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen and enhance your efficiency. We have already episode number 10 and today's episode we'll talk about a very, very nice topic for a podcast, actually visual analytics. The picture says more than 1,000 tables, an interview with Zach Scrivenag. This podcast is sponsored by PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives for statisticians. Learn more about upcoming events at psiweb.org. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. This is Alexander Schacht, and today I'm again with my co-host Benjamin. Hi, Benjamin. Hello, Alexander. And we have a guest here. Hi, Zach. How are you doing? Hello. Well, thank you. Okay. Zach is actually also at Lilly, like myself, and he is... Um, has a very special role. He is research advisor for visual analytics. Can you explain a little bit what that is? And can you uh, explain a little bit how you came to this position? Sure. Um, I'll explain what it is first. So a visual analytics combines automated analysis techniques with interactive data visualizations for an effective understanding, reasoning, and decision-making. It offloads the cognitive memorization burden on the to the visual cortex to allow the users to focus on the task at hand, making decisions based on data. A data visualization is viewed by many disciplines as a modern equivalent of visual communication. It involves encoding of information using shapes like dots, lines, or bars, colors, and movement to visually communicate a quantitative message. Effective visualization helps users analyze and reason about data and evidence. It makes complex data more accessible, understandable, and usable. And there are two general applications of visual analytics that I call exploration explanation. Exploration is when you don't really know the answer, you don't know what the signal is, and you're trying to identify it, you're trying to learn about it. And so it might involve a lot more interactivity. You might not pay attention to as much, uh, pay as much attention to graphical display, for instance. Whereas in the explanation part, when you, explanation is when you already have the answer. You have a, a message that you want to communicate. And there you might be a little bit more concerned about providing a pixel perfect uh, visualization. You might have less interactivity or more guardrails on the interactivity, but the two areas still apply the same basic principles 
of data visualization. Now, you asked earlier about uh, my interest, Alexander. Yeah, and how you, what's your career up to now that led you to this visual analytics um, sure. position? Sure. And so uh, I guess you'd have to trace it back to my undergrad school in Cornell University, where I studied under Professor Velleman in statistics. And he, uh, he studied under Tukey, who was, is one of the founders of exploratory data analysis. In fact, that's the name of one of his uh, most well-known books. Um, and he used interactive data visualization um, in his methods. And in fact, uh, I did an internship with him where, we, where I contributed to a software package uh, called Datadesk. And now I'm dating myself a bit. This is actually, now, now we're talking about in the you know, early 1990s. Um, and so at the time, it was cutting edge. <laughs> right now, it's, there's a lot of software that can do what it does. But it was one of the first softwares that could do uh, brushing, 3D visualizations, when 3D visualizations were in vogue at the time, et cetera. Um, and then after uh, graduate from undergrad, I went to uh, grad school and, and I did some additional work with Datadesk. And I did a, a, a dissertation in linkage analysis, um, where we're studying associations between phenotypes and genotypes. And we'd look at pedigree data and we'd visualize that using a, a tree type of structure and see how it's associated with different markers for the genome. When I went to, uh, when I graduated, I've, I've got a job at Eli Lilly and I worked in early drug development, uh, working in biomarker space endocrinology. And we, I've re used visualizations heavily in that work. Uh, a lot of times that's all I use to, to, to present the data. But when I'm presenting the data, I'm taking account statistical concepts still. You, you, if there's a, a, a confounding factor, you want to condition on the confounding factor. Otherwise, you might uh, uh, obfuscate the, the, the message and might be uh, and might be misleading. Um, when I uh, after a few years, I've worked in uh, late phase drug development, and uh, I leveraged uh, data visualization heavily when I, I was in charge of the efficacy submission. Um, and it was quite effective. Uh, if, if the drug really works, you should be able to show it easily. Um, and that segued my uh, career into leading uh, the visual Linux effort at e Eli Lilly. Um, so basically, in all your different career steps, you have been relying heavily on visual analytics from undergraduate through the different phases of development, up, up to now where you basically apply it across the complete company, isn't it? Precisely, precisely. And it affects all different areas of, of building and understanding your, your, your data from, from prescriptive to predictive. Uh, we, I use data visualization throughout all the different phases of understanding the data. So, so Let's dig a little bit uh, back into uh, what you explained about visual analytics. You talked about two different concepts. Um, on the one hand, exploring and learning, and on the other hand, messaging or, or um, communicating uh, something that you already know. Can you explain, maybe you can give some examples for these? And what are kind of the key differences between these different phases? Mm -hmm. Sure, certainly. Um, so, uh, an, an example 
of exploratory is when you're um, maybe first uh, uh, you're, you're studying the, a, a drug that's first introduced into human beings. Um, and, and you might have some ideas about how that drug is going to affect humans based on your preclinical data, but these are just hypotheses, and, and, and you can't uh, assume that's going to translate perfectly, and it never translates perfectly, or hardly ever, I should say. And so you have to be wary and, and be ready to, to explore all different uh, uh, possible associations of the drug with either untoward side effects or even positive benefits. There might be benefits that you didn't anticipate. Um, and often when we're trying to um, uh, uh, understand these, the performance of a, a drug in human beings, um, uh, we, um, we, we'll, we'll try to identify patterns, see if there's any, um, uh, even, even outliers could be a pattern. Okay, and try to identify you know, what, what's unique about those patients. And, and when we try to figure out what's unique about those patients that might make, might make them different than the other patients and how they reacted to the drug, we invariably will want to see different domains of interest uh, for, for, for a group of patients. And depending on the indication, um, you, you might want to look at certain lab values. Maybe demographics are of interest. Maybe maybe you're interested in, in their age. Maybe that could, could affect your interpretation of the results. And to, to assess all these different um, um, possible explanations, interactive data visualization is a great, uh, uh, is a very effective tool uh, to do that. Um, with presentation, you, you already have, uh, you, you've identified uh, so, some issues and, and you want to have a, you want to communicate that clearly. Um, and if you, uh, if, if, so you could communicate that with uh, whatever the, the appropriate vehicle is for your data, depending on whether you're dealing with continuous data, discrete data, categorical data, et cetera. Um, and there you're, 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 you're focused on the message that you're trying to communicate and make that clear. You're not trying to deceive anybody. You're trying to communicate the message in, a, in, in an unbiased fashion. So in terms of the first thing is kind of you have a really big data set and you are looking to uh, gather insights from this data set. Um, you can condition on different variables. You look into different associations over time, whatsoever. So, so all these different dimensions in the data, you explore them. And um, in the messaging, you have just one specific finding that you want to communicate and communicate effectively. Yes. Is that something? Mm -hmm. that, that's a fair way to characterize it. So how is it different from, uh, from how you do this? Is there a different kind of workload involved? Is it different tools that you are in, involving there? Okay. And so when you say different, you mean uh, different from versus um, just, just producing uh, tables, figures, and listings? Is that what you're comparing no, it to? No, different between the uh, exploring learning oh. versus the messaging part. Okay. Okay. Um, and, so, uh, and so the difference between exploring learning versus the messaging part in terms of the uh, tools that you use, uh, well, uh, for exploring learning, you might use uh, an interactive software like uh, like Spotfire. Uh, that's really useful if you want to compare 
data from different domains for the same patients. You can do, it has really good drill down capabilities. Um, we might use uh, jump, uh, jump, j- jump, jump, just regular jump, jump pro, jump clinical. Uh, they, they all are uh, great software programs that will, uh, uh, that uh, uh, helps with um, exploring and trying to find, you know, uh, prototyping, you know, prototyping your analysis. Um, and the other tools that aren't, that don't have um, uh, inherent statistical capabilities, but you can include them because they segue in t- with R are tools like uh, Tableau a- and, um, and even um, um, Power BI has a great interactivity with R. So you can include in- inference in your exploratory analysis. Now, um, and, and of course, you can use uh, R and R Shiny, but then you have to build the interactivity from scratch, and that building takes a lot of work. And so, you, so you can achieve a lot of the interactivity that you can achieve in Spotfire or Jump uh, or, 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 or Tableau or Power BI with software like R and R Shiny, and R Shiny in particular, but then you have to build it all. And to build it all, that's 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 a big project. It's a software project, basically, um, and and you might as well just start your own company. Um, whereas once you have um, the 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 message that you want to convey, if you can convey it in a, in a static form, then you might use uh, R, you know, to to produce the the um, the data visualization. And if you want to have some interactivity, but you want to put guardrails on it, and you want it to be limited, you want to just kind of c- control, you know, the, the interactivity. Um, then, then uh, you might uh, have been sh- making our shiny app out of it that you can share with people. Yeah. In terms of, um, so, so these are all tools that are very much give you lots of flexibility to look into the data, but they don't produce kind of you know very very nice targeted figures for the individual case, which I guess w- is more needed for the messaging where you would put much more detail into kind of what is the exact kind of color for these different things, what are exactly the different visual cues that you're using, what are kind of the um, the font size of the titles and, and, the, and the legends and all these kind of things. So, so that would be more with the messaging, isn't it? Correct, yes. Yep. And then you could achieve that with software like R, um, and if you want to have pixel perfect data visualization and you want to have a high level of interactivity and you can't get everything you need out of R or Shiny, then you might break into JavaScript. And there's a great D3 library full of examples of, of uh, data visualizations that are interactive and can be pixel perfect at the same time. Yeah, no, I was I was just uh, just going um, like trying to get a step back um, again, maybe to well, we, we we talked a little bit, you know, a lot of you know the the opportunities and the um, you know the, but that that you are able to support and to show to visualize and stuff like this. But obviously, there are there are also some um, limitations where we can maybe you know talk a little bit about. I mean, just just a simple example. I mean, for example, using visual analytics in a podcast might be quite challenging. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what is what is the what is the area or where where do you see um, limitations, problems, or challenges where where you where well you basically you know you you find your the, the natural end of of the involvement of um, visual analytics? So what is the challenges that you daily face? face oh, I don't know about the challenge you daily face. I mean, I I was thinking you're going to ask me when you don't want to use data visualization, but um, uh, let's see. 
Um, so a challenge I did that, I, um, well, I mean, there's the, the biggest challenge, <laughs> the biggest challenge with visual analytics is, is really the same challenge I think we have in statistics in general. Um, and, and that's just with data wrangling, data munging, getting the data in the right format so you can consume it in a way that, uh, that meets your, your, your visualization needs. I mean, that's not used, to, that's not unique to visual analytics though, that, but that is, I'd say, 80% of the work is often just getting your, munching your data, getting the right format, obtaining your data, um, de-identifying it if you have to, things like that. That's that's the biggest challenge. Uh, uh, if you uh, if you work in a company with you know access to plenty of software, then 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 that frees up a lot of the challenges. But for some people, they might not have that convenience, um, and so so they they might be limited in, in their software, and that that of course would be a challenge because without the interactive data visualization software, you just can't do it. Um, but that's probably not your question, Benjamin. I, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, it is. It is. It is. It is part of basically what. What is the you know? Um, it sounds all very you know. Whatever you you said before, it's it's really it sounds very um, convenient and and convincing in terms of how to use it and and as well what what are the the benefits of it. But that's why my question is also where, where okay. do you see the limitations and um, obviously data yeah. is a limitation. That's that's um, well, I I think yeah. more the limitation is in setting yes. up the data so that you can visualize it yep. easily. Yeah. And, but, but true. my perception is that um, you can probably also for certain things, you can standardize yeah. it. Yeah. So let's say you have a tri-level safety review. You look at similar data for many, many studies over and over again. So, and that is of course something that is very, very nice to explore in a visual way. Because you're looking for outliers, you're looking for, you know, trends, you're looking for these kind of, you know, patterns in the data. And very often you want to see, especially kind of for um, studies with small sample size, you want to see individual patient level data. So how is the AE happening um, with respect to maybe co-medications that are starting or with respect to when the doses are given, um, things like that. So, so these kind of data you can very, very easily probably visualize and standardize. Absolutely. And that, I think, takes off lots of the workload. But I think you need to have, you need to find these situations where you need to look into the data again and again. It's similar also, I guess, with with these kind of dashboards that is used in more of the business analytics uh, case where, you know, you need to set up it once and then you can look at your business data on a weekly basis or something. Yeah, and it's similar to, to the usual stats programming and statistics tasks that we see if we yep. have, you know, repeated business or repeated uh, outputs and questions coming, then it's easier yep. to standardize it. And I guess yep. the, 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 the one thing we're not saying is standardization can often be a big challenge in a company, an organization. It, that's That can be hard to achieve. But, uh, but it is the key to, to making it, making visualization routine. If you had standardized data input, that would make it uh, much easier. 
Um, another another question, Zach, regarding um, also regarding your day to day work, is it so? What what exactly? I mean, how can I imagine you working um, on a day to day basis? And uh, are you are you involved in, on a study level, or is it that that you are more involved in in providing and and creating, designing the software around it to to visualize the data, or how how can I? You know, for me, just to understand well, what's your um, input into into the uh, visual analytics at Lily. Yep. Yeah. So, so the the key to, for me to be effective, um, and, and this is true in general for anyone who's trying to create in, trying to uh, create innovation in the company, is that um, I need to have hands-on examples of real problems that people are trying to solve, r real workflows that people are going through in their in their daily or weekly activity, and I work with these these people or teams, and, and I, I work on projects with them along with with a team of people. And we'll do we'll we won't do tool development right away. We'll, we'll help. We'll do things. We'll write scripts from the, uh, from scratch, and we'll do programming from scratch, just trying to meet their needs. And if we've realized that this is a common need that is they're going to need it over and over again, and other teams they're studying similar um, phenomenon, we're going to need it over and over again. Then we we segue into tool development and, and develop a tool to automate a lot of the things that we might have done on the project when we were just learning. So I, I divide my work life up into about 50% supporting projects where we're actually embedded in teams and, and, and actually working on individual deliverables. And the rest of the time is external focus and tool development and to, and like like this podcast even. That, I'd consider that that would be part of my job. So basically, 50% you're working, so to say, in the company on the projects, and 50% you're working Deliverable. on the company to overall improve the company. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yep. Yes. So, in terms of speaking about uh, clinical studies, um, in a setting where you have randomized control, nice, clean data, Where do you see the benefits of using visual and ad analytics there? Well, the, the, the beautiful thing about cl clinical data is, is, is by design, we can infer causality. Um, it's, it's pristine data. And so it's a really perfect environment for uh, using visual analytics. Um, and, and we always have to worry about strong control of type 1 error, um, but that's, that's usually included in a formal testing strategy. Uh, for the primary and secondary analyses, um, but invariably the other thing that uh, that study teams uh, and, and need to understand is the relationships. They need to kind of contextualize their data, and so so when we have a, a, a clinical database lock, we have data from various domains. We have domains for labs. We have a domain for adverse events. A domain for disposition, etc. And Uh, invariably, when you're trying to interpret a certain result, uh, you want to contextualize that result. And what I mean is, for instance, if you see someone with um, who's above two times upper limit normal for aminotransferase and above three times upper limit, upper limit normal for bilirubinia, uh, then then that might tr trigger a flag for being concerned about um, uh, liver tox toxicity. Okay, and so Uh, so, so if you have an interactive data visualization, you could imagine a scatter plot where you have reference lines for two times upper limit normal uh, for the one lab and 
three times upper limit for the other lab. And that those are the criteria for High's law for liver toxicity. Yes. And then you can identify the patients in those in that quadrant. And then if it's interactive data visualization, then you 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 can select those patients and then automatically, seamlessly, within seconds, even less than that, see a visualization of other relevant data. For instance, adverse events. Maybe that matters. Um, you know, for for those particular patients. And, and, and time of onset and things like that. So, so going back into that kind of setting, so, so imagine we have this scatter plot where we have these two lab tests on the vertical and the horizontal um, yeah. axis, and we have, um, now we are getting into the challenge of having a visual analytics discussion <laughs> in, in the podcast, but, but and so, so imagine you have this, uh, this scatter plot there, What I think is also really nice is you could um, have this scatter plot animated over time. So, so because mm -hmm. you see that the lab values go up and down and you see how, the, how this cloud of patients with their lab data actually behave over time. And you can see whether there's an overall trend over time that, that moves into this um, corner that is dangerous. And Then you can also use techniques to kind of hover over these patients to see what are these patients, what's their uh, co-medication, whether they are pre-treated, whether they get uh, certain concomitant medications, whether they have AEs, all these kind of other things you can kind of find out by just hovering over the, the uh, dots in the scatter plot. So I think this is, for example, a very, very nice things that you could potentially use across multiple studies um, because for certain indications, you will need to check for these kind of things over and over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Nicely described. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can visualize that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we are trying to create pictures in your head at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, besides lab tests, can you come up with other examples, for example, in the efficacy area where you have used uh, visual analytics quite successfully? Sure. Uh, it's so... Uh, so um, Visual, I mean, for efficacy, uh, if you have uh, your, um, you, you know, once, once you have your database lock and you, you have your primary and key secondary analyses uh, evaluated, okay, um, invariably, the, when, you, when, you, when it's time to show your results to, um, to decision makers, at least in my experience, Every time that uh, when I was on a study team, we had to show you know results for database lock decision makers. They wanted data visualization, it, you know, and maybe that was just my world, but I think it's I don't think it was that unique, um, and, and that was the way to convince them, you know, with a little asterisk for a significant p value, but they wanted to see the longitudinal data over time. Um, the the uh, data visualization is an effective means of communication and with efficacy that it really makes sense uh, if, if you know if your drug is efficacious 
you know, to, to, you know, demonstrate that visually. Um, one, one area of data visualization that I've been um, uh, making a lot of progress in with uh, is um, animating uh, clinical data. Um, and, and animating clinical data uh, really gives a nice, uh, concise uh, story of the data. And, and when I talk about animated clinical data, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of continuous data. Um, and, and you're you're animated over time, so you have you have fixed visits at fixed points in time, and you basically do tweening, which is the IT term, or you do interpolating, which is the stats term, but they're mathematically equivalent to interpolate the data over time. And and the advantage of of that is that um, first of all, you you show you're showing the raw data, and, and uh, people. Uh, like to see the raw data. Um, they, they, you know, when we've presented to advisors and and thought leaders, they're really impressed by by being shown the raw data, not just a bar plot. Okay, um, and by seeing the raw data, you can see relationships. Like for instance, you could p- plot post baseline versus baseline, and, and that's important because baseline often will affect how how much efficacy you observe in the trial. And when you have these higher baselines, you, you, you can often see a, a greater change from baseline. And one of your concerns is, does it get do you do you improve as much? Do you get to the same level of improvement? Say there's a threshold of improvement, like with with diabetes, um, you know, the primary surrogate endpoint is a mean change from baseline A one C, and often A one C cutoff of seven percent is desirable. And so you want to make sure that everyone got below seven percent, even if they had a very high baseline. Now, if they had a baseline of like 7.1%, you're not that impressed. But they had a baseline of like 9%, you might be impressed that they got below 7 So anyways, by visualizing over time and visualizing using baseline, you can provide a very rich, basically, explanation of what happened in the data. And by visualizing over time, you can also evaluate how early was the efficacy. How early did you get below that 7% threshold in HB1C for diabetes, for instance? Um, and, and you can have a panel for different treatments, and you can see, you could hopefully show that you know your exper- experimental drug has earlier onset of efficacy than, than the control drug, if that's the truth, if, if that's the case. Yeah, I, li- I really like that visualization. So I'm coming more from the neuroscience areas, and there's lots of um, endpoints where you have a total score and you want to see 30, 50, whatsoever percent improvement from this total score uh, from baseline. But of course, you also want to see where patients end up. So do they meet remission? Do they come below a certain threshold that is perceived as clinically meaningful or where you can't differentiate any more the symptoms from the normal population. And so both the percent change as well as the absolute value are very, very important over time. And then I think if you have a scatter plot like you described, where the horizontal axis is a baseline value and the vertical axis is a post-baseline value, and so, so patients develop over time and then they um, move up and down over time. Each patient in the scatter plot over time, you see how this cl- cloud actually develops over time, whether it, it gets, goes down, whether it goes up, whether it goes only down for certain parts of the baseline variable. Um, 
And where where's the differentiation between different groups is happening? And also, like you said, if you have it animated, you can see how fast the drop over time happens. Is it is it happening directly at the beginning? Or is it happening slowly over time? Or is it kind of pretty stable for quite some time and then it drops? Maybe just before the, the study end or something like this. Or does, is there some kind of um, what I've also seen in some neuroscience studies that there's some kind of end of study effect that kind of just before the study closes, there's a placebo effect uh, dropping in, something like this. Or you can also look then into subgroups of the patients. That is something that I found also very, very helpful for, um, especially for negative studies. So where you couldn't separate between the uh, two treatment arms. Then very often the question comes, why is this happening? Is there certain subgroups where there is actually differentiation? And then, of course, if you have an interactive visualization, you can very easily go into that and, and see what's happening and not producing hundreds of tables uh, to look into all different kind of combinations of the data. Yeah, but usually, I mean, you you already see that there's a yeah, huge advantage in in terms of um, having figures rather than tables. Uh, you know, not normal normal figures, as you know. So basically, I I fully agree that that this is um, you know producing hundreds of figures is quite a um, yeah waste of resources if you could see this animated over time and and get the um, you know the answers to your questions right away. So I. Um, that's, that's, um, already, you know, you already see with visualization in a, in a sense of, of having, um, well-designed figures, the big advantage of visualization and now having this animated over time, even with interaction, interactive, um, access to, to the individual patient data, that's, that's, uh, an, an enormous advantage, um, but but now comparing it to I mean now, now I'm again comparing it to just normal um, figures or, or even tables. How much? Where do you see the future of visual analytics in the pharma industry? I mean, you can probably talk about um, Lily a little bit more. So, do you see there's an increasing need? Is this kind of do you foresee the end of normal figures and tables or is the, so where do you see, I mean, obviously there's a future, otherwise you wouldn't work in there, but um, what, what is your, what is your personal opinion about the, um, the future of visual analytics? Well, I'd love to uh, expand on that. Um, let, let's um, look back in time a little bit in, in drug development um, in the last century of uh, uh, when we did uh, submissions, and I'm going to focus on submissions at FDA, um, but I'm sure the same thing happened with EMEA and, and PMDA also. But I know personally, uh, I know for a fact that when we did submissions to the FDA, we would uh, provide them uh, piles of paper. Um, and, and the piles of paper would be so high and so massive that we actually delivered it in a semi-truck, an 18-wheeler, a lorry, a lorry, I think they say in the UK. Um, this is a very large truck, very large truck. In fact, uh, I, I moved my entire household a few years ago, 
and I moved uh, uh, from one state to another in the United States. And, and this moving company, uh, they put four households in this one truck. And I was just one fourth of that whole household. <laughs> you know, so these are my beds. <laughs> I, I, I just find it phenomenal to think a whole truck from floor to ceiling was filled with paper. You know, from floor to ceiling. And mm. I've heard in some cases they've done more than one truck. Um, now, uh, th- this is really a, a disservice to, to regulatory agencies, disservice to, to us. It, it just, it's just a piles of piles of paper. And where we're at now is we basically do what's called electronic submissions. Both electronic submissions, we're giving the, the regulators the e- equivalent of a truckload of electronic paper. And the biggest advancement that we have is we have hyperlinks. So we can click on a hyperlink table of contents. We go directly to a certain page of interest. And that is useful. That is useful. But it's not, I don't think, where we're going to be in the future. I can't imagine that we're going to there, – there's no reason – why do we even have a fasten meal of a piece of paper that we work with uh, and what I mean is I'm referring to Word documents, I think, which is a common – it's proprietary, but I think it's a common format. But general, whatever word processing software you're using, you're, all submissions, from my knowledge, are given in terms of some sort of word processing document and maybe convert to PDF or whatever. But the point is that all these documents you could print out in, in an 8.5, 11 by sheet of paper, and you would not lose any integrity except for the hyperlinks. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what I mean. And now that I don't think is the future. I just can't imagine. And now I might be retired by the time we, we go beyond, you know, word documents or, or word processing documents, you know, it might not be in my future. I hope, I hope I do get to see it, but, but eventually I can't imagine that we're going to be basically, you know, working with this fast mill of, uh, of, uh, of, a, of a paper, you know, in electronic form, for for the for forever you know for, even in the century i can't imagine even making it to the end of the century and doing this because when when most people work and it, it, it's changing over time i mean i still i still know physicians uh, and, and people who they, they tend to be older than me who who will print out their word documents they'll print it out you know because they just can't work you know they, they can't mentally handle working with the computer but i think that generation is going away and i think the new generations coming up and even even millennials, but even the generations, you know, coming after them, they're they're very comfortable doing work on the computer. What I mean is, they don't need to print out a document and have a piece of paper to work with. And why that's important is now let's look at the work environment. Well, they're working with these monitors that are landscape landscape oriented, right? They're wider than they are tall. I think most most, yes. most follow yeah. the 16 by 9 format. That's typical. Well, we should fill that space up. We should fill it up. And if you're using a, a fast mill of 8.5 by 11, a, a portrait fast mill, even if you rotate it, you're not filling up that whole space. And that, that space is, is actually – that's a very precious space because that space is, is, is our, our canvas that we can paint our picture on of our data. Okay, And so I foresee – an interactive data visualization format for providing information to regulatory agencies. And I don't even see why we have to transfer anything. Why can't we just host this interactive data visualization on top of our database in a third party, maybe a third party, it doesn't, you know, but that's the route that seems to be most plausible. Maybe a third party server, 
you know, some sort of quote unquote cloud, you know, just a bunch of CPUs attached together, right? And 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 then the company can work on it. They can develop their messaging. They, they, they and and I'm not saying that you're not going to have numbers and, and, and analyses. You can have that, but but it can be part of this interface. It doesn't have to be in the shape of a page. Um, and and, and when the company is ready for submission, well, what do they do? Well, they could just give the password to the FDA or the password to EMEA, and they could just access the exact same you know interactive visualization software with with the primary and key secondary analyses. You know, pre-calculated, already done, and that can be frozen. You know, you can't manipulate that. Obviously, I mean, there's guards on it. So when I say interactive visualization, only where it makes sense. Only where it makes sense. Um, you know, you know, that, you know. So I'm not talking about you know p-hacking and facilitating that type of uh, you know unguided type of analysis. But I'm just talking about facilitating what what we do all the time when we when the sponsor provides submissions, and also what the FDA and the PMDA and the EMEA and other regulatory agencies have to do when they analyze your submissions. And and we can facilitate that with interactive data visualization software. I was just thinking about this. In terms of these benefit wow. risk analysis, so you want to look whether all your efficacy endpoints, all your safety endpoints, whether they are consistent across certain mm -hmm. subgroups of mm -hmm. clinical interest, where you know these have been shown to be um, subjects yeah. of interest in, in the past, maybe for uh, other drugs that have a similar method of action, they play a role. So you want to explore whether <clears throat> your benefit risk profile is the same mm. across these different um, uh, subgroups. And, of, and currently, very often, you would have these data spread over lots of different yeah. tables. Yeah. And maybe in even different modules of, yeah. of your submission. Yeah. And so, so to gather these data, you need to spend an enormous amount of time to dig into the data and then to manually carry all the data together. And if you're interested, if you have, let's say, 20 different endpoints, yeah, across safety and efficacy and quality of life and whatsoever, and you are looking into, don't know, 20 different subgroups, you end up with 400. searching for 40 400. different tables. Yeah, 400 different tables. And, and, and then, you know, you want to have not only the p-values, but also the, the treatment effects, confidence intervals, whatever. Yep, that's you right. forever. Yeah, just, just, just to that's understand right. the data. So where I think really important comes is to... Um, get a sense of these summary statistics across all the different submissions and have them be visualized very, very well. I think we had that theme, this topic already at the PSI conference last year where we talked about this. So that, you know, this results data set uh, topic, if you can visualize that, you can better understand your data, probably even better communicate your data data very, very easily using um, visualizations. Yep. And, 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 and I will point out, too, that you, you've coined, you referred to the results data. You know, and again, you know, it, it, the key is getting the data, you know, the analysis results data sets, right? You, you need access to that data. You need it in a, in a consumable format. That's, that's often the biggest challenge, you know, is the data itself. The visualization is 
fairly trivial with the software we have these days, you know, to actually do a good visualization. You can do it pretty easily once you get the data in the right format. And, and picking out the right visualization is part of the skill also. But there's there's all sorts of um, references and forums to help to help you do that. Yeah, but by as I'm talking now about data, I um, I think I need to clarify that I'm now talking about summary statistics yeah. as data. Yep. So, so for example, means or percentages yeah. within different subgroups within different yeah. treatments over different time points, and then of course you need for these type of summary statistics you also need the relevant metadata yep, that's so right what study you are looking into what time point you're looking into what is the statistics you're looking into yep. what is the sample size all these yep. kind of other things um whether you're looking into the mean mm -hmm. or the percentage whether you're looking into the lower upper confidence interval the p-value whatsoever and If you have that, then of course you can very, very easily visualize, for exactly. example, forest plots. Um, yep. Thinking about the treatment effect across different yep. subgroups or, or stuff yep. like this, or within the subgroup ac across mm -hmm. different endpoints. And that, I think that is one thing that will come much more in the future mm -hmm. that we have these summary statistics together with metadata and can look into them um, interactively rather than, yeah, just having them um, as kind of mm -hmm. RTF Absolutely. files. Absolutely. Yeah. Now we talked a lot about kind of the, the future and the theory. Let's go a little bit back into kind of um, the tools that you can use. So um, we talked a lot about different tools, but I think the, the, the problem with the tool is very often kind of um, simple is nice. It's not as flexible, but it's probably good for a starter. Uh, complex is very flexible, but probably not so nice for a starter. So coming from this kind of hierarchy of tools, what would be tools that you would recommend for, let's say, starters, intermediate, advanced people? Okay. Uh, so starters, I would recommend using Jump. Uh, jump Jump is a good tool for statisticians. Um, yeah. There's, uh, the other starter type of software is, you know, I'd say Tableau is a starter type of software, and, but it's, it's, it can be cost prohibitive. Power BI is actually much, much more affordable. That's also starter software. But both Power BI and Tableau, they're really catered towards marketing business people. And it can, it's really reflected in, in how you do data visualizations. So it, it took me a little bit of time as a statistician to, to understand the mindset uh, behind it. Whereas with Jump, I found very intuitive and I just felt like it was speaking to the statistician. Um, uh, but again, we're, I think I mentioned this earlier, if you want to connect multiple domains and, and have really great drill down capabilities, I, I, I would recommend Spotfire for that case. Um, then uh, as you advance, uh, okay. you know, R offers some great data visualization capabilities and R combined with Shiny or even just R, just Plotly you know, offers great data visualization capabilities, but it's going to 
um, you're going to have to build them from the ground up, and you're going to have to specify every single interactivity that you want. Um, and so it takes a little bit more scripting, a little bit more uh, work, whereas to do the same thing in a software like Jump or Spotfire, it's just all GUI-driven. Where to do an R shine, you have to write the script to, to be able to create a GUI. <laughs> to create the GUI, you have to write a script. Um, so I'd say R shiny is a little is more advanced. And then then a lot of the R shiny apps are really built on top of JavaScript, you know, and often from the D3 library. And so all the Sankey plots in, in R shiny, that's all from JavaScript. Um, the force directed plot in Shiny, well, that's all from JavaScript. And and uh, you were talking earlier about the trade offs between uh, complexity. Uh, and, and power, you know, and and, and, and the trade-offs apply here also. When you're using R Shiny, it's actually uh, it's less uh, complex than programming JavaScript from scratch, um, and, and and so because of its because it makes it the trade-off though is you don't have not, you don't have quite as much flexibility, and you can do a lot more fine tuning if you get right to JavaScript. Now, of course, you could even host JavaScript right from R Shiny, which is a whole different, <laughs> you know, a whole different twist. Uh, but that that the point is though, I'm talking about how you actually program the visualization. You know, whether you're using R Shiny to host it or you you have it hosted on your own web page, it just has JavaScript embedded in a web page. Um, the point is, uh, you can get to the most granular detail by programming in JavaScript. And Python too can is quite powerful too, actually. And I'd say Python, R, JavaScript are more advanced. Um, and then do softwares like Jump, Spotfire, uh, you can jump right in. Literally, that's I think that's the reason why they got its name probably is uh, to imply that. <laughs> I've always guessed that. I'm not sure actually. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, we will we will put some some names to the outline at the you know at our website and, and just um, because I think nobody will be able like if a starter in this uh, in this area then will be able to remember all the names that you just mentioned. Um, but anyway, but what is what is actually your advice if there are people out there who who are interested in the you know in the um, in visual analytics. So, how, where where are the places to learn okay. about it? And and is there any any recommendation? Any anything yes. you can uh, you can? Um, I would that? recommend uh, Flowing Data. Okay, uh, Flowing Data is a uh, is a website, and it provides examples of great data visualizations, and it provides tutorials and courses and has discussions uh, and, uh, of you know, all about data visualization. So flowing data, um, I recommend flowing data. Um, uh, I'd also recommend uh, Perceptual Edge, but that's more business analytics focused, but uh, but uh, but still is quite valuable. Uh, Perceptual Perceptual Edge also. I'd say has some really good um, information, you know, and they talk about color schemes and things like that and, and get into the practical things as well as theoretical. Um, so those are two. That's correct. That's correct. It is. And that's yeah. also a homepage. Yep. Yeah. That's also a web page. Yep. And is there, do you, do you see that there's an increasing community of uh, people working in the area of visual analytics, any congresses or any uh, conferences that, that, that are happening mm -hmm. and uh, sure um well the ieee uh visualization conference uh consists of three basic um uh, uh groups or organizations all all dedicated to data visualization or visual analytics i should say um there's infoviz uh and infoviz um is like infographics 
Okay. Um, and so you might see, at, well, I know we have a broad audience, so this might not be fair, but New York Times often has really good info viz on their, on their uh, website. Um, and they have interactive data visualization to try to, you know, explore data, understand data of different topics. Um, and then there's SciViz, which is also part of IEEE Viz, uh, and they, they, they would probably be less interest to statisticians um, where they, they, they might use data visualization to um, uh, apply to uh, science, like, like you might have a, a very... Um, uh, pixel perfect data visualization of the uh, of the uh, of a mechanism of, of action of a drug. You know, you might show the different organs and, sh and show how one receptor when a drug binds a receptor how it has a cascade of effects. And you visualize that in a three D image. That's often used uh, to to explain, um, but but it's all to explain science. But it's also used actually in, in scientific endeavors. Actually, S scientists have used this type of imaging. Um, uh, you know, uh, to to diagnose patients, for instance, you know, even MRI scans are examples of SciViz. Um, and then there's VAST, B-A-S-T, and that's where that's that's more in lines with what I was calling visual analytics, mm -hmm. uh, where they they there's a a a problem workflow, that, you know, you have to apply and use uh, visual analytics to 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 solve your answer. Um, and so th those are. Uh, you have the, you have, um, I'd say the cutting edge in visual analytics. And, and you know, frankly, um, the, you know, we know in the past there was Tukey who, who carved out a spot and exploratory visual analytics, exploratory data analysis. Um, and then there's Tufty from Yale who also made his name in, in visual analytics. Um, and th that was all in the past century. Um, and, and a lot of their methods were applied to uh, static, uh, static visualizations. Not all, but but a lot. Um, and uh, since the 1990s, uh, a lot of the cutting edge data visualization has been coming from, I'd say, uh, computer science, um, and it's often a collaboration with neuroscience and psych psychology. Um, that um, uh, people like Mike Bostock, he, he developed the D3 library. Um, for, for JavaScript, uh, and he used computer science background also, um, but th that's where I would go for you know the the, the you know the, the cutting edge uh, visual analytics. Um, Speaking about cutting edge visual analytics and conferences, um, you gave a great presentation about uh, this topic at the last year PSI conference, so in 2017 in London. Um, now you're also coming to this year's Indeed. PSI conference in yes. Amsterdam. And we have a session there that uh, just by chance, <laughs> <sharing. laughs> and uh, it has a really nice title. Of course, it has a nice title. A picture says more than 1,000 <laughs> tables, interactive data review using visual analytics. And Zach, you're actually giving the first presentation in this session. What can we expect from well, your presentation? Well, my presentation I'm going to be laying out the, uh, the, the where where I see uh, visual analytics applying in, in pharmaceutical drug development and, and where 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 it's going to lead us, um, and and then we have a a, a a group of presenters that are going to delve into specific applications and, and to, just to really they're really proof of concepts you know where where they're actually applying visual links already, you know, to work going on today. But the idea is it also should inspire people to see, you know, the potential of, of where this can go. 
Yeah, and and then of course we don't have the limitations of a podcast. Indeed, so indeed. you can actually see. <laughs> yes. <things>. So, <laughs> so, talking about this, Sounds see good. you all Sounds in MC then. then, hopefully. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks so much. Bye. We thank PSI for sponsoring this show. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your colleagues about it.